Hello and welcome. My name is Robin Marriott of Property EU, and I'm delighted to be hosting this second edition of the Urban Land Institute's Vanguard podcast series. Now, the ULI brings together real estate land use experts from around the globe with a clear mission to shape the built environment and have a transformative impact in neighborhoods, cities, and communities. And this podcast series focuses on that future and that transformative impact. Now, the ULI Young Leaders Group recently selected 10 outstanding young professionals already making waves in the industry, calling them the new real estate vanguard. And I'm delighted to welcome one of them, William Polisano, co founder of the UK group Drum. William, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. First things first, no, two two things. Yeah. Is it Drum or is it Drum London? Drum London, because there's a Scottish property group that is far more successful than we are called Drum Property Group, I think. So definitely Drum London. Drum London. Yeah. Second question, uh, you probably ask this every day of your uh, working career. Are you related to the famous architect Lee Polisano? For my sins, I am. Yes, he is my father. He uh, is. Yeah. Ah. There's actually a few. There's a few Polisanos floating around. The um, couple that aren't related to us, architects that aren't related to us, and my younger brother, who is an industrial designer, actually working at PLP right now as well. Is he? Yeah. So you may stumble across him at some point. Right, right. So this is basically um, answered the first question that I pretty much ask all those um, people that are joining us on yeah. this series, which is, you know, why real estate? So in a way, did you even have a did you even have a choice? I did have a choice. So let me premise all of this by saying I'm not actually meant to be sitting here. Uh, this, uh, I guess, nomination was originally intended for my wife, who is. Uh, the other co-founder of Drum London, Theodora. But we welcomed our daughter at the beginning of December, which is obviously um, taken taken priority. Uh, so I've stepped in. But I guess the answer for both of us is quite similar. We both come from, uh, I guess, backgrounds dominated by the built environment. Both of her parents were architects. My dad's an architect. My uncle's in the construction industry. Uh, my grandfather built swimming pools. So it's kind of, it's, uh, I think there was a choice, but it was always the easy option because, you know, the routes that were available to me in my late teens and early 20s in terms of work experience were those in the built environment because I had a very close family member in the built environment. So, you know, my first bit of, my first work placement was with Mace, right? If he'd been a dentist, my first placement probably would have been with a dentist. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I've a, I did a history degree, have latterly gone and done a, a degree in real estate finance, but um, much more of a words person, as you'll probably get from this podcast, much more of a words person than a, than a numbers or, um, or, you know, drawings. Yeah. But why history? You could have you could have studied architecture, I suppose, couldn't you? And oh, far, far too far too intelligent to study architecture. <laughs> this, uh, um, I love I love architecture. I love design. It's not the reason that I went into this industry. I think my um, especially, you know, spending every more or less every day of my life in London, in in kind of inner London. Um, 
my why for going into real estate was always focused more on kind of places and the interaction of people within those places and spaces than it was on the you know the style of architecture or the you know the design of the buildings that inhabit those places as it were so um was never interested in going into the design side um complete opposite to my brother who obviously was um but that's just how the cookie crumbles i guess and and same with theodora she um her i guess academic and professional background separate to drum is in regen placemaking um she's a she's a essentially a socio-economic consultant for um private and public landowners looking to maximize value both both financial and social so children of architects yes uh definitely interest in real estate in the built environment in the blood but but not uh not looking to continue the line of extremely uh long hours and angry client i wanted to be the angry client I'm guessing on the other side so um this yeah, is illuminating is that what it's like uh we should get you talking just about no, that no long hours extremely Def- angry client long hours definitely. is that what you got from your dad this De- is what he def- said yes more or less yeah yeah um on the history side by the way so you're a londoner right same um, as me yeah uh, so if you know all about the, do you know about the history of london then Can i know i know some things about the history of london can we go out for like a pub call at some point across London and you can point out all the things I don't know about that or you could point out the things that I don't know I yeah. would I would like that a lot I know a lot about uh I've always said this south and west London I've been growing up in west London and very little about north and east London oh that would be perfect my grandfather was a docker okay his dad was a docker and also okay. a professional footballer okay uh, for west ham yeah um, which was obviously a club that was born out of uh, the ironworks, yeah. hence the yeah. irons, Hammers, as you probably yeah. know that. I could take you all around the former dock, dock sort of area, and you've seen all the development taking place. And I can share privately some of the stories that my granddad used to tell about life on the docks. I would enjoy that very much. Excellent. So we got a little bro, bro date sorted out. Indeed. If nothing else. Um, just tell us a little bit about your uh, early time. I had a peek at your biography, yeah. and I saw that talking about placemaking. Yeah, you you have you've worked on some very large urban projects, haven't you? Have. Silvertown Keys is yeah. one, and Twenty Bishopsgate. Twenty Two Bishopsgate, yeah, both in London. Tell us about those projects. Um, so my involvement on Twenty Two was much, I guess, deeper than my involvement was on Silvertown, although Silvertown was one of the first projects coming up to 10 years ago now that I ever worked on um, when I was at Lipton Rogers Development. So that was a, it's now being brought forward by Len Lease, but at the time um, was under the stewardship of of Chelsfield, Macquarie and First Base. Uh, that, That Silvertown partnership had then appointed first base Lipton Rogers as the development manager so I got some exposure to a you know 62 acre uh, I guess blank canvas with some very interesting heritage assets sitting on it um, and at the time the the central idea for for the regeneration of Silvertown was around um, brand experience spaces so it was about bringing a kind of new type of you know, we talk a lot about immersive uh, commercial spaces now, but bringing a new type of, of immersion and brand experience to um, 
to a part of London where, you know, not exactly known for it as a retail destination. Um, so it, it would have been a, a truly mixed use zone as it will be now, but under a slightly different, um, I guess, guise. Uh, mm. So we we got an outline planning consent there. Oh, don't remember the exact year, but sadly um, didn't have the opportunity to bring it forward, which is which is often the case. And it was it was sold on in in 2018, uh, and now you know, thankfully it is being brought forward because it's a huge hunk of uh, land that needs to needs to serve a purpose for London. Um, equally large and I guess uh, probably more more complex uh, scheme was 22 Bishopsgate so that was the old pinnacle site or old Helter Skelter site which was fondly known as the stump because mm. the previous owners had run out of money uh, they were attempting to build out a design that was most certainly a pre-global financial crisis design simply wasn't viable so um, Stuart Lipton and Peter Rogers did what uh, they do best, which is to turn non-viable opportunities into viable ones. And spent um, so actually, my my first year at Lipton Rogers was spent speculatively circling around this, you know, almost mythical opportunity in the city, which ended up being twenty-two, and with the backing of an AXA-led consortium of investors who did the largest all-equity deal I think ever done for a single office building in Europe. Um, we bought the site in early 2015 and spent the next year and a half working up a planning application for a 2 million square foot, 278 metre uh, tower that you now see in the city. So that was obviously... Um, obviously incredibly special and uh, that was a privilege to work on work predominantly the majority of my work as a development manager has been on the front end so acquisition design finance and planning um and that was that was a real privilege to work on um and more recently i guess if we're talking non-drum related things i've spent the best part of two years working with my old development director from lipton rogers in a new venture called frame very large scheme four and a half acre site called one portal way in north acton so that's got got a planning application in for um again two million square feet um truly mixed use so a mix of build to rent for sale some co-living a hotel 250 ish square feet of workspace um so i've i've been very lucky in having um had the opportunity to work on some schemes that definitely have or, or will continue to shape the city that I grew up in uh, being able to work in West London most recently was obviously um, quite exciting for me because you know I grew up driving past the, the site that I have been working on which is always always wow. quite exciting yeah kudos to you for working you on these I mean 20, 22 Bishopsgate is no joke like, no wow no it's a big one <laughs> it's a big one yeah yeah, with yeah. all the amenities and everything on offer there, yeah. it's yeah. Well, we, I mean, I say we. I can't take credit for it, but the decision was made um, to carve out about a hundred thousand square feet of NIA to give over to amenity space, um, which I guess is, you know, now is normal 
you wouldn't build a large office building now without amenitizing it because you know tenant well-being employee well-being um the flight to quality both for tenants but equally for businesses trying to attract the best talent it is now seems obvious to us but you know eight nine years ago wasn't actually as obvious so um we did that and we worked very hard to to have some financial value attributed to spaces that on the face of it don't necessarily have a value um and i think the, the result was a was a pretty cool building oh. um so that's you know, it's always nice to be invited when you when you're invited to a you know a conference or, or a drinks event um at the top of 22 it's always quite a, a rewarding feeling to be back there indeed now i'm just thinking you mentioned spaces and value that can be attached to them probably a decent segue into drum london yeah so why don't you tell us a little bit about this venture which i think you started with your wife as you mentioned theodora beckett yeah what's the concept uh how did you think of it you know so what's the impetus yeah and uh yeah just tell us all about it sure so um we started thinking about drum um i guess back in 2019 uh, so we'd just come back from some time abroad. It gave us, I guess, some space away from the rat race. I'd left Lipton Rogers. Um, Theo had left what she was doing and, and had also completed, you know, gone back and completed in her in her late 20s a, a degree in, um, as you call it, sustainable urbanism. It's called sustainable cities, but essentially sustainable urban development. Um, we quite liked the idea of doing something on a more um human scale to to large scale development things where you could you know schemes where you could walk around and really know each corner of the the asset intimately um we like the idea of doing something in the residential space and and something towards the social end of the residential sphere um i don't i don't know exactly i mean I don't know exactly what led us to land on the idea that we landed on, but it was, it was Theo's, Theo came forward with the business plan that ended up being drum. Um, I, I won't pretend to recall the exact conversation, but we centered on homelessness as obviously a very serious issue in the UK, but you know, more specifically in London within the homelessness sphere, it became apparent to us that, you know, the biggest problem is arguably not the homelessness you see. It's not rough sleepers on the street. That is obviously a problem. But the biggest problem in the homelessness sphere is is in the temporary accommodation sector. So temporary accommodation is uh, where families or individuals that present to their local authority as being statutory homeless um, are placed temporarily, in quote marks, uh, whilst they either get their lives back to a place where they can move back into the private sector where the majority of them will have come from or into social housing, which, you know, as we know, can be a pipe dream. You can wait, you know, a decade as a family for um, for social housing. So um, the majority of people that end up in temporary accommodation have lost a private sector tenancy. So they've been evicted from from by a private landlord. And it's a really strange and, and actually quite disturbing um, space within the residential market because it's not 
social housing. It's not quite private housing. It's not regulated as social housing would be. Um, so the majority of local authorities' quotas for temporary accommodation, or TA as it's referred to, is filled by private landlords. So you or me, we might own a flat. We can turn up at, you know, the proverbial town hall and say, hello, Mr. Local Authority, um, I would like to lease you my flat for two years so that you can house your homeless population, right? And the local authority will jump on it and they'll pay you, you know, almost whatever you ask them to pay you. So in addition to what's often, you know, market rent, private landlords will often ask local authorities for incentive payments because they'll say, listen, I could lease this flat to this nice young professional couple or I could lease it to you so you can house a homeless family. If I'm going to do the latter, you need to give me, you know, two grand, three grand, whatever it is to secure a two-year AST. So what you have is hundreds, thousands, actually, of profiteering private landlords, kind of the, this is, I guess, the worst end of capitalism, um, who, who are offering up their properties to desperate local authorities to house homeless families and individuals in conditions that you often wouldn't wish upon your worst enemy. So, you know, damp, mould, rodents, overcrowding, you know, you name it, it exists in the temporary accommodation sphere. It's probably the closest thing, you know, that we have to, to slum housing still. Um, so we set out to address two fundamental problems within the TA sector. The first was, you know, local authority budgets being ravaged by having to pay over the odds for very poor accommodation. Um, so, you know, on an annual basis, local authorities across England spend well in excess of a billion pounds. Um, and that's a deficit on, on temporary accommodation. Um, and the second problem was, was the, you know, the direct social impact of people that are already in a very vulnerable position being housed in substandard conditions. So extremely poor physical and mental health outcomes um absolutely no progress towards breaking the cycle of of poverty or addressing any of the issues that may have led them to becoming homeless in the first place um and a kind of self self-serving system of um well profit 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 for misery really um so our business model was quite simple it, it was never meant to be a a non-profit or a charity it was a it was a development business designed to bring my development management skills together with Theo's knowledge of the public sector and of people I guess um, the business plan was to buy and refurbish existing assets to provide high quality temporary accommodation so a specification similar to you know a social rented specification in the in the affordable housing sector to provide high quality temporary accommodation to be leased to local authorities and or housing associations on medium to long term inflation linked leases to assemble enough of these assets that you can wrap up a nice institutionally sized portfolio of you know 80 90 100 million pounds plus and to sell it onwards to a long income fund at as low a cap rate as 
possible and for us to you know take development management fees throughout these projects and you know when our funding partner or funding partners exit to have a have a promote or, or a profit share on the back end so that was the that was the dream uh that was the plan it turns out working with local authorities is is uh, challenging at the best of times it's extremely resource heavy and i don't think we were prepared for the time and the effort and the pain and the constant slaps and punches of trying to agree you know because you're, you're not even turning up most of the time to a local authority and saying here's an asset it's been refurbished would you like to take you know a 15 or a 20 at least you're going in theory if we had an asset that looked like this that you wanted to use to cut your temporary accommodation spending by x over this many years would you and they're going eh, no they, you know they're just not programmed to entertain hypotheticals um so that was the that was the original business plan we started working in actually right before covid i mean we had a complete shutdown for almost nine months from march 2020 because nobody wanted to look at um anything i guess they they deemed to be too interesting at that time they wanted to take stock of their their existing investments and make sure everything was in order but um we started working with a uk a, a well-known uk fund manager um they're a b corp they're very um aligned with our own values it was a it was a really good match and um, we started bidding on sites i guess throughout 2021 and 2022 with the idea of so these are kind of in the in the five to 20 million pound region so i guess what you would call you know speaking to to an audience that might have exposure to to much larger uh sites and that i guess what you would call the kind of lower end of the of the land market um which again is a strange space because you know you've got professionally run you know investment managers funds developers operating in that space you've got smaller family offices operating in that space you've got sometimes you know individual investors and developers at the really much lower end operating in that space. so everyone kind of plays in this this five to twenty especially between five and ten and it's really competitive and our business model I, I mentioned that you know one of the our first priorities maybe i didn't mention one of our priorities was really trying to erode some of the budget deficits that local authorities were being exposed to through essentially profiteering private landlords and we did that through a commitment to fixing our rent at local housing allowance so local housing allowance is the housing benefit that you're entitled to in the private sector right to help you pay your rent um in theory if if the tenant is entitled to their local housing allowance from government and the local authority is only being charged that local housing allowance by the landlord in theory i say in theory because there's always other costs but in theory there should be no deficit right everything should be even now that meant that we relied heavily on our exit yield assumption so on every site we looked at we knew that our rental assumptions were going to be much much lower than you know the people that were bidding against us you know they're all private residential developers for the most part assuming market rent and that 
was a tricky I guess that was a tricky business model to make work because at each hurdle we had to really really push and convince whichever funding partner we were working with at the time because it wasn't always necessarily the one I mentioned um, that we will be able to exit at you know whatever it was at the time you know, four and a half percent four and a quarter percent say and if you couldn't make that assumption at the back end then you couldn't make it work at the front end right because you know we you know we have a fixed we have fixed rent local housing allowance and you have a lot of other variables that might not be fixed like you know costs um so we set about busily you know bidding on everything we could we could find in that market focusing on london because the biggest problems associated with homelessness statutory homelessness and temporary accommodation are in london um so you know of the circa 350,000 statutory homeless in this country more than half of them are in London this might not still be the case so don't fact check me on this but you know certainly a year ago uh, all 10 of the biggest spenders on temporary accommodation were London boroughs um, which makes sense we, we, we live in a in a in a city with very a very high cost of living, very high rents, and housing benefit that, frankly, in most places isn't isn't high enough to really um, help people the way it should to pay those rents. So in mid twenty twenty two, we got uh, our first offer accepted, which was, uh, by the way, cut cut through me if you if you want clarification or anything. But um, mid twenty twenty two. We had an offer accepted, eight eight-ish million pound offer accepted, um, on a site in the borough of Southwark, so in in Bermondsey, uh, which was amazing, really amazing. So we beat off competition from three others. Uh, by this point, you know, we'd really fine-tuned the business model. We we fine-tuned the you know exactly what we needed to do on the refurb of certain types of assets. We'd we had started to develop. Uh, a relationship with Southwark Council who we wanted to be the ultimate leaseholder um, and then well and then Liz Trust came to power so um, <laughs> so we'd obviously already been in an environment where where construction costs had been increasing for some time so that was harming us because local housing allowance remained where it had been this goes back to having fixed value but not fixed costs and um i think i think we had that site under offer at the end of august and we agreed eight weeks to exchange with the vendor and i think within the first five weeks of that eight week period our our cost of debt had almost tripled um and of course, every time we went back and refreshed the cost plan, the costs had gone up slightly. I mean, literally every time we spoke to the debt market, our cost of borrowing had gone up, 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 up. So we ended up having to chip the price, as you do. Uh, then we ended up having to chip it again, as you do. So we were having to be constantly reactive and eventually the vendor walked away because um, well I would have done the same thing I imagine they were probably underwater by that point so the vendor walked away and this so this has ended up being a blessing for us in a 
for for a few reasons actually so since that time the kind of instant and, and I, you know we had a quick conversation about this before but the this you know the kind of institutional bellwether for this sector has been home reit so you know they've deployed hundreds of millions of pounds into uh into supported accommodation often you know temporary accommodation of a supported nature um and that and that was actually quite that was actually quite good for us it was quite good for us in conversations with funding partners because prior to this nobody really knew what kind of housing homeless families or homeless individuals were put in nobody really knew what you know transitional supported accommodation was nobody really paid any attention which is part of the problem um i mean that might not be fair in the mainstream real estate industry i don't think people have paid as much attention as they should have done um and obviously in the last you know five or six months since the viceroy short seller attack they've they've obviously had some um some some quite serious issues come to light um we had been toying with the idea of because it's so much easier to get through to them but with um with leasing our buildings instead of going to the local authority leasing our buildings to one of these supported housing providers which are mostly you know they're not housing associations that most of them are cic's community interest companies um so so the covenant is is certainly not as strong as as a you know good old-fashioned housing association of the local authority but you can pick up the phone and speak directly to the ceo you know they'll send you example leases they'll send you um letters of intent they'll send you you know whatever you want them to send they're, they're really open they're really hungry for more stock um and you know for the most part they'll sign up to you know long-term inflation linked fri leases so in our attempt to be flexible and malleable and kind of bend and mend the business plan as we went on we'd you know develop relationships with a lot of the cic's that you now see um i guess coming up against home reit and i guess i'm i'm grateful for the fact that we're not tied into any of that right now um listen i think what's happened in the last few years is is the private sector has stepped in to provide social support services for homeless households and homeless individuals where local authorities have not been able to do so and in theory that's a really good thing um in practice a lot of them have you know they've only been around for three four five years they've scaled really really quickly and the rate at which they've scaled has made it impossible i think for a lot of them to provide despite the best of intentions provide the services to their tenants that they should be providing and the services for which they are being paid by local authorities to provide so that has in many places added to the issues in the temporary accommodation sector um i think naturally where the state is not able to do so the private sector will fill the gap and that's exactly what's happened here um i hope i hope that you know home reit can 
continue in some capacity uh, and I hope that they can be successful because I think what's really happened is suddenly lots of people have jumped into this sector there's been a lot of movement and I guess a lot of kind of infighting now between home REIT and their tenants when they should be working together for a common good and I hope something positive can come out of that and I hope the government will wake up and actually start to impose regulation on this sector and I know you know we speak to crisis a lot I know they're really pushing for that um, because it's mad right it's, it's mad to have a corner of our housing industry where we're housing the most vulnerable people completely unregulated that's insanity William <clears throat> you're talking about something extremely serious yeah but so where has this now left so, your business yeah so uh, so I guess the big thing that's happened in our life is obviously our daughter was born so Theo's on maternity leave um, which I guess has come at a good time because we were so excited I mean it was a really it was really an amazing feeling to get the business finally to a place where we had where it looked like you know we were we were certain to to close our first deal um, that was really rewarding it would have you know paid us well over the next year or so it would have given us the platform to go out work with you know different partners pick up more sites expand get better at what we were trying to do and to really have an impact in a sector that actually needs some some professionalism injected into it um but a few things have happened on a, i guess a you know a macro scale since then that have led to us uh quite happily sitting almost licking our wounds and thinking about how to re I guess repackage our business plan in a way that is viable because um so as I said our rents are benchmarked on local housing allowance which is which is housing benefit housing benefit is in theory meant to rise in line with inflation right so that as life gets more expensive as rent gets more expensive people's ability to pay that rent and their ability to maintain their tenancies in the private sector is not compromised. Now, that has not happened. In fact, the government relentlessly freezes local housing allowance, and this financial year will be no different. So we had been expecting, especially with inflation having been as rampant as it was, and especially with rents having gone up as much as they have, um we were expecting local housing allowance to be increased by the government um, and the announcement came at the end of January that they would not be increasing local housing allowance. So that means we've been faced with, you know, a 20 to 30% increase in build costs. Our debt costs are much, much, much higher than they've ever been since, you know, well, actually, since they've been in the entire time I've been in the real estate industry. Um, but our rental level has stayed the same. And, you know, at the same time, it's now almost impossible to argue for the, the cap rate or the yields that we were arguing for because, you know, you can buy you can buy 10-year government bonds right now at 3.3%. So you're not going to buy a, an asset with a, you know, 20-year lease to a housing association at 35 So... 
you know, our yields have gone out by, I don't know how much, you know, 50, 75. Some people might argue 100 basis points. Our rent has stayed the same. Borrowing costs have gone up, build costs have gone up. You can see how this starts to become an unviable business plan extremely quickly. And, you know, there's a lot of things that we have to do in this. You know, it's not just going out, trying to find opportunities, trying to pull in funding partners, trying to pull all of that together. It's also, you know, speaking to charities to make sure that we are taking the right approach in how we specify the buildings. It's also trying to develop relationships with local authorities and housing associations. And, you know, for a time we were doing the same with CICs. And it's really, really time consuming. And it can be, frankly, quite a thankless task when you feel like you're just banging your head against the brick wall. Um, and I think you'll find, I mean, a lot of people that probably operate in this more social end of the sphere will find this that... Um, ideas that should and can have a really really positive impact you often find people just they're just too lazy to try and work with you to make them happen to be honest with you and that's quite a, that's probably i've brought it back to something depressing again but <laughs> that's uh that is the rea that is the reality of it to be honest so we're now thinking about where we go next um we're committed to trying and you know try and continue do something in the in the homelessness sphere right now the business plan that we had it just doesn't work mm. it's impossible to make it work mm. unless you compromise on some of the values that you had initially said you weren't going to compromise on which we're not prepared to do yeah oh my god it's, it's so frustrating listening to this because of course meanwhile you've got people families uh that are still uh in the temporary accommodation that you have described absolutely yeah tens of thousands of them yeah so have you, by the way, one other question, just just occurred, a million actually questions occurred to me, but just conscious of time, have you had a chance to look at what happens uh, in other countries? Uh, let's say, let's just keep it to Europe for the moment. Is there one country that has a system that is actually working for the people and for investors at the same time? It's a good question. I can't pretend to know the answer to that. But I do know that, you know, there are especially northern European countries that have tried to adopt a, a kind of housing first principle, right? Which is so as soon as, you know, as soon as you are in need of a home, you're housed in social housing. But, you know, we haven't got anywhere near enough private or social housing. That's our issue, right? So that's an impossible, you know, it's all very well to say, you know, to advocate for housing first in this country, but. I mean, to me, it's it's not uh, it's not practical. It's not reality. So we haven't, um, and we probably could do with looking at you know best practice in other countries. Yeah, and uh, look, I'm not going to lie. I'm looking. I'm looking for a happy ending. I, mean, well, I want that to happen, there, right? There, yeah, yeah. <laughs> where, there's where? not. I mean, I've got some. I don't know about happy ending, but there's some interesting lessons that we've learned, which I which I feel could be useful to share in terms of trying to start a small business. So we tried to start our business, which was our nice family business, uh, working together, which has actually worked remarkably well working alongside your partner. It's actually, um, you know, we save the bickering for outside of work, which is which has been good. Um, 
lessons that we've learned. So we would have done a few things differently. We would have made sure that we had a financial runway when we started that allowed us to run 100% of this business. So I've already mentioned that a lot of the things within this are extremely time consuming, very frustrating, and you do really need, you know, to preferably more people devoting 100% of their time to this. But we didn't have that financial runway. You know, this was started almost as a kind of side venture, knowing that we both had to go out and have an income that would allow us to pay the bills and almost allow us to do this, right? So Theo was working, um, has worked across a, comp a couple of different consultancies in that time. I've worked as a, almost a you know, a, a freelancing development manager, first for, Lip you know, went back to Lipton Rogers for a bit and then at Frame during that time. So we've both had a lot of other things going on, which have made it impossible to give 100% of our time to drum. So things that took us a year could have taken us six months. Opportunities that we could have pounced on, we didn't. So I guess my advice to anyone thinking about starting their own business is try and give yourself the leeway, the runway, if at all possible, um, to to be able to devote 100% of your time to that business for a good for a good period of time. Because that's the only way you'll really know if it's going to work or not, we found. The other option, of course, is to go out and secure the backing of a business, uh, you know, that will set you up with, with what you need to go out and do that, you know, pay you a salary for a time and, um, you know, set you up in an office. But, but I guess that's, that was a lesson we learned and will be a lesson for whatever we do next for sure. Yeah. Listen um, to, I'm hoping, William, yeah. <laughs> that there's a white knight out there that maybe listens to this yeah and uh send send them yeah yeah oh my god because I, let, let's be frank i think everybody listening to this desperately wants you and others like you to succeed it is frustrating listening to your story yeah but. i mean for us you know we've we've had actually so we were thinking about this okay our first deal fell out of bed a few months ago that's terrible really frustrating for us right Actually, we've had some really good exposure. You know, we've been invited to speak on lots of different panels by lots of different businesses, some of them not real estate businesses. We've been invited to participate and give our thoughts, having spent, you know, a couple of years fully immersed in this uh, on the problem by, you know, charities that are probably far better qualified than we are to opine on these things. Uh, we've been invited to do university lectures on the topic. Um, so we've been, I guess, quite good advocates of a need for change in this sector. So at the very least, um, I hope this at least spreads the word a bit about the issues facing um, homeless individuals and families having to live in, in temporary accommodation. Um, yeah, and, and this is not a new issue. I mean, we found, we found archive footage from uh, the BBC going back to like the 70s. Um, where they were reporting on poor quality temporary accommodation in southeast London. Really, um, some incredible footage. So this is not new, it's just kind of hidden. Um, so I do hope there is a white knight that swoops in on a on a stallion and, and if they're not carrying us somewhere to to, you know, victory and change then doing doing so for someone else. Because um it's it's a really a it's a rewarding place to be if you can make it work. It really is. If you can make money 
in this industry, if you can make a good living and really have a profound impact on um, on your own environment, on your own built environment, that's that's you know that's quite incredible. Um, so for me to be able to have an impact on my home city, a tangible one, uh, would be would be the most rewarding thing possible. I don't think this is the end of the story. I think there will be a happy ending and I'm looking forward to hooking up with you again basically to, to listen to phase two of this because uh, you know I think the world needs you and uh, your, your wife and yourself can make good things happen so thank you very let's much let's see what happens in the future thank you for being so candid with us and yeah, sharing absolutely. your story to date absolutely may we wish you the best thank you very much I thank look forward you. to my tour of the East End it's coming up thank you cool. William Politano thanks very much